Hello. Uh, before we get into the episode proper, I just wanted to say a very quick thank you to Will Mountford, who stepped into the breach at what is a very, very busy time for me, and I'm sure so many of us at the moment, to edit this episode of The Cosmic Shed. If you don't know Will's podcasts, Wiki Walking and Eureka Nerd, then you really should check them out. Eureka Nerd is one of our friends here on the Stimulus Network podcast. And before we get going, here's a little taster from Eureka Nerd. Hi, I'm Leah. And I'm Will. We are the hosts of Eureka Nerd, a bi-weekly science news podcast. Ever wonder what's inside a lobster? What are some of the health risks associated with bagpipes? And if you lick a toad, what's the worst that can happen? Join us every other Sunday for new episodes at EurekaNerd.com and at EurekaNerdcast on Twitter. Find more sciencey shows through the Stimulus Network at Stimulus.network. This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. Today's episode is about Wandering Earth. I'm Andrew, and with me today are... Steve. Ty. Tishna. Ty, tell us about the film. Well, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, it's nice to be back in the shed, remotely. Uh, <laughs> in a while, we've all been very busy people. I don't think I've seen many of you since Rise of Skywalker came out, so... Is that right? Yeah. 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 Whoa. Uh, also, you wouldn't let me in the shed to kind of voice my issues with the film, so... <laughs> we talked about it on the May the 4th special episode, so everything that needs to be said about Rise of Skywalker has been said on the Cosmic Shed. I'm sure it hasn't. But nonetheless, <laughs> The Wandering Earth. So The Wandering Earth came out in China in 2019. It was released on Netflix around the rest of the world at the end of April 2019. And this is China's basically attempt to match Hollywood at its own game when it comes to batshit crazy science and special effects laden nonsense. It was directed by Frank Guo, who's a Chinese director who uh, cites James Cameron as his main influence. And just watching the film, you can see that. And it's based on the 2000 novella of the same name that's written by the Chinese author Lu Zixin, I believe. My pronunciation is going to be all over the place. But this was a big hit in China. It grows 700 million, and to date, it's the third biggest Chinese film of all time, after Wolf Warrior 2, which also stars Wu Jing, who's one of the main stars of this film, and uh, Niza, which is a Chinese animated film about demons, but it's apparently very big. So, in short, I'm sure we're going to get into the plot, but it's humanity has buggered up the Earth, so we need to find a new system for our planet, and essentially... Humanity decides to build 12,000 engines on one side of the planet in order to drive Earth to another solar system three and a half light years away, I believe. <laughs> yeah. um, or is, no, it's, it's just over four, four light years. And it's not because oh, of climate change, it's because the sun's yeah. about to turn into a red giant and destroy the Earth. So obviously on their way, they encounter some problems, in this case, while they're near Jupiter. And it's basically an excuse for a full-on special effect-laden disaster movie with our heroes driving special space trucks around, avoiding ice shelves falling on them, 
and all the sorts of nonsense you see in stuff like Armageddon and stuff that America churns out. Of course, because this is a Chinese film, it's dialed up to 11 and is even more crazy. But I don't know. What, what did you guys think of it? I, I personally think it's no less ridiculous than half of Hollywood's space-laden output. If America can do it, why can't China? I think taken in context as a sort of mass market blockbuster with a load of ridiculous special effects in it, I really liked it. It, it was an absolute riot. I think watching it dubbed into American was a bit weird. Uh, yeah, you can never do that. Always go for the subtitled version. Did you watch it subtitled? Yeah, yeah. The options on Netflix. As someone who kind of uh. watches a lot of Asian films, I've always just watched them subtitled. So, yeah. Very pretty looking film. There are shots of it's the gorgeous. earth moving with all the, you know, engines firing and it looks beautiful. No, it, it, it is an incredibly beautiful looking film, I think, because we all watched it, apart from you, Ty, we all watched it at the same time in sync. And I think all my positive comments were about how beautiful it looked. Um, <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, some of the Jupiter shots are amazing. It, I, occasionally, because I was watching it projected on a relatively big screen, and occasionally you could see the edges of the CGI, but that's okay because enough of it was beautiful enough to to make it well worth watching. The reason we watched it dubbed is because we didn't know it was going to be dubbed and we started and we were like, oh, oh, oh should we stop and carry on? And we just thought, no, let's leave it and carry on. I have since gone back and started to watch it again in subtitles and it's a much better film <laughs> when it's in subtitles <laughs> than when it's dubbed. I noticed your uh, tactical phrasing there, Andrew. The, the 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 good comments you made were about the CG. What else did you think? Uh, well, we're going to get to the science, right? So let's leave the the science where it is <laughs> for the moment. Okay. So my I, I think the acting felt quite hammy, and I don't know if that is the Chinese way or because the overdubbing really made it seem cheesy. If it's, I think it's the overdubbing version, yeah. yeah. Then the acting always yeah. gonna seem over the top. But Asian acting, in particular Asian dramas, can be a lot more uh, theatrical, depending on what the film is. Obviously, there are much more nuanced Chinese and Asian dramas, but as a whole, everything is bigger. Yeah. And there were some bits that, that sort of struck me as sort of I don't know, I don't know enough about Asian movies to to say stereotypical, but there was a sort of brother sister thing and some hammy fighting and people persuading people in different ways and and, and stuff. But it yeah, it, it felt like a, a few little set pieces there that might be common in other movies. I think I agree with Ty when I say that all of the hamminess that we saw, we've seen before every single one of those things in all of the US blockbuster, you know, you're thinking about like, you know, even just classics like Armageddon or mm. Deep Impact and things, you know, all of the ridiculousness over the, you, you, you know, that feeling where you're just constantly thinking, why does Hollywood insist on sending over the emotional people on <laughs> key <laughs> missions <laughs> to save the planet? Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, that's what makes it fun. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think all of that, I was just, I was quite happy to just go along for the ride quite literally. 
I really enjoyed it. And even though, the, like, the science, oh, I, I've actually had so much fun in the past week looking up a lot of different stuff on, like, how it could work, what couldn't work, what could work, what are the options and all of that. So that, on that point, was really good. But somehow, all in all, I really enjoyed it. And I liked it, like, a lot more than Ad Astra, <laughs> you know, which, I, okay. you know, I think everyone in the shed now probably knows my feelings about Ad Astra. <laughs> like, it was so boring, Ad Astra, even though it had that beautiful, you know, it was beautiful and the imagery and that was the only thing that saved it. Oh, come on, my, Brad Pitt's my, not that attractive. <laughs> no. <laughs> my, I think my comment about Ad Astra just being like a two and a half hour perfume commercial with Brad Pitt and the space in it, you know, that was the pacing of of Ad Astra, whereas Wandering Earth was just, yeah, there was, in fact, I felt like maybe a critique would be that too much happened. They tried to pack in way too much into a really short time. And thinking back on it, I feel like it could have been much better if they wanted to pack all of that in as like a mini series, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, Because it was like a thing and a thing and you're trying to deal with the sort of humanity aspect of it and the father-son relationship and then the the whole Jupiter too close, too far, (laughs) all of that. Get away from it. Yes, we can. Engines on, engines off. It just, yeah, there was a lot going on. And I, I think we all hit that point at the two hour mark where we were like oh my god there's still another half hour yes is um it's most comparable to is armageddon because both michael yeah. bay and frank woe look at uh james cameron as an influence they're both very long films that are way over two hours and you have again a father child dynamic that needs healing you have a bunch of characters that you know are going to die en route you have various technical challenges they need to overcome like drill heads breaking or needing to get to power stations in this and then there is heavy nationalism and accused of this all the time in their films and i think this is a very cultural bias thing because we've grown up with american films like armageddon and the Rambo films. And for us, American nationalism just washes over us <laughs> at this point. When it's Chinese nationalism, all of a sudden it's kind of like, well, hang on, this is just very pro-China. How dare our the Chinese hero unite a bunch of international astronauts together? Whereas this happens in American films all the time and we barely bat an eyelid. So, it, it, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess it was that classic. Chinese Armageddon. Yeah, there's Chinese nationalism and then there's just straight up communism. <laughs> and I think there were, there were there were a few bits where like they weren't even basking it. There was, I think, a bit where they straight up said together we are stronger. And if you were not together, you were dead. Simple as that. And then there was my favorite, which sort of it became our little mantra while we were watching the film. Death is Death normal. Is normal. love that loved it they were just like we will all die and that is fine that is absolutely okay (laughs) this film might have no heroes because everyone's going to die and that's fine (laughs) the bit that struck me along those lines was old man tries to bribe government official to get his grandson out of jail and for the bribery he gets thrown into jail himself exactly exactly they kind of make you think that it might work and you're thinking oh wait but I'm sure I read lots about you know Chinese government backing for this film and then it's ah no it didn't work <laughs> he definitely got screwed because of that and you know then got to come along on the ride and um, spoilers not make it um, <laughs> <laughs> if we're gonna have a go at that for 
having overtly communist messages. Surely we should have a go for overtly capitalist messages in every oh, yeah. film ever. Oh, movie. yeah. Absolutely. Mm, it's just Absolutely. that our indoctrination masks them from us more. It's, uh, it's, it's, it was really interesting to watch a Chinese blockbuster. Mm. Mm. Have, yes. you, have you watched there, a few? There, there is a, a lot of themes in Chinese blockbusters where it's all about if we work together as a team, we will overcome anything. And like the highest grossing Chinese film of all time, Wolf Warrior 2, is a essentially a Chinese special forces unit in Africa fighting a bunch of American mercenaries who are just gunning down civilians and then the Chinese soldiers protecting civilians and evacuating them. But that film literally yeah. ends with a shot of the Chinese Navy telling all foreigners to kind of get out of their territory. It's quite spectacular. It, it's an amazing action film. The uh, Sam Hargraves who recently directed Extraction with Chris Hemsworth he did all the second unit action for Wolf Warrior 2 and the Russo brothers helped out with the action choreography and it's a, it's a really fun action film to watch. But yeah, it, it's just a common theme throughout lots of Chinese films where you'll often get in American films like one person sacrificing themselves for the good of the mission. Whereas Chinese films, it's like, no, no, we can just all do this together. It's like you don't have to sacrifice yourself. If we just work <laughs> as a team, we can get this stuff done. Or we can all sacrifice ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. And if you're, if you're not part of the team, you die. Death yeah. is normal. Death <laughs> is normal. But there's still definitely one or two people who are the main protagonists. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. You're, you're always going to have a hero. Yeah. I think it was very clear that the hero could not in any way, shape or form have done it on their own. And like, you know, right at the end, it's quite, quite a nice uplifting moment where they sort of have to send out this call for help. And, you know, they think that no one's going to come because there's like the hero and then there's his team, his squad, but even they can't pull it off. And it's the rest of the world has to come to their rescue. And I love that the first people who showed up were the Canadians. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It was mm. like squadron from Canada. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> no, no real mention of why they were somewhere vaguely in what was still Shanghai or somewhere in thereabouts. <laughs> but, you know. They I love that. I, I, it's kind of weird. Everyone thinks Chinese as being very isolationist, but in their films, they're very embracing. And it's weird yeah. that every now and then, you know, you'll get a big Hollywood blockbuster that tries to be more embracing of, you know, Chinese audiences like the Pacific Rim films or... Mm -hmm. uh, skyscraper with the rock that's set in China to kind of cater that international audience. And the Chinese audiences will go for it, but that doesn't work vice versa. Western audiences do not embrace Chinese films or even Chinese action heroes like the East does to the West. And uh, yeah, I, I think when, when you watch more Chinese films, they're actually much more tolerant than you would expect them to be. Is this sort of the first big space Chinese film? It's, it was billed as their first big sci-fi blockbuster, yeah. Most big Chinese blockbusters are either action films or they're kind of fantasy films. Mm. They're really into fantasy films, the Monkey King legends and things like that. But this was their first big sci-fi film. It kind of touches all the bases of like Armageddon from one guy going crazy and firing a chain gun at Jupiter. <laughs> Uh, to, you know, just some great space shuttle shots. So It's got absolutely yeah. everything you'd want in a mainstream sci-fi blockbuster, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like they, they brought up a bingo sheet and they were like, right, right, tick, 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 tick. You know, have we got this? Have we got this? Have we had, the, like you say, the breakdown and then the beautiful scene and then it all goes wrong. And then, you know, there has to be a father's, you know, sort of family relationship or multiple. JCB digger chase, skyscrapers yeah. falling yes. down. Yes. mercenary bad guy who kind of maybe survives at the end. I can't remember. The dodgy guy from the beginning. Maybe he does make it. I can't remember. It is, it is hard to remember who survives and who doesn't. But there's, I, the, um, I, I'm just thinking about if, in terms of where China is in its history, because they've really got a very, very active space program at the moment. Mm. I wonder whether, I don't know how tied in to the kind of government, the film industry is, or wh whether like this is, you know, back in the film. Very much so. They do very much have a, a cooperation with each other. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind that's of... Say how it works in in communist China that there is a communist party office everywhere, and so I'm sure that they have a great database, and so it is all linked up. <laughs> so, but in, in terms of the sort of geopolitics of it, we're we're entering the the next phase of space exploration with certainly in the West commercial private public partnerships. And we, what, end of this month, we're supposed to have the uh, manned SpaceX Dragon capsule going to the International Space Station, things like that. And it's, again, that I, I, I don't think that the timing of this could have been synced with that too deliberately. But it's, it's definitely a, a time when the, the superpowers are going to be shouting more about their space capabilities. Yeah. Well, I mean, like today, I spent the day marking people's SWOT analysis of things. And my phone popped up to say there was a launch about to happen. So I watched the launch of the Chinese, is it March 5B or something? Uh, rocket, which is testing their next uh, big space capsule that is going to it planned to take a mission to Mars in July, I think, this mm -hmm. year. So that's, that's happened literally today. And they've got, they've got moon missions. They've got they've, food, they're the only food missions. Oh, quantum um experiments in space too so you know um they're doing the like quantum entanglement from earth into space and they you know they're soon going to have like a quantum experiment on the moon even which is really yeah. cool i think what's that what, what's of, the um, benefit sorry i'm going all sciencey <laughs> i i, I want to know more about that just now Oh, it's really cool. At Physics World, we happen to know the sort of lead scientists on that. We've been working with them for many years. So um, it's nice because every time they come up with a new thing, I get an email saying, hi, we've got a new paper out. And I'm like, ooh. The main benefit of it is to try and do it across massive distances and to see if you can have a quantum signal that doesn't sort of decohere or fall apart across a massive distance across space and things like that. So, yeah, they've got a quantum satellite, basically they actually managed to have a connection with um, up in space down on Earth. I've got a quantum yeah. television. I don't know if that counts. Don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, even get me started on the QLED technology. <laughs> yeah, that run, trust me. Quite, that's why I said that. Um, but I, this is above thing. your quantum of solace, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or my quantum dishwasher tablets. Oh. Yeah. So, well, when I, is that word quantum? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what you said, Tushner, about it being a series, because... Since then, I've been thinking, if you made uh, Lost in Space into a film, like the series <laughs> into a film, it would be like this, where there's this sequence of really big disasters that you've got to get through. 
one after the other. So yeah, it could be a pretty good. Are you talking about the, the the new bad series, not the old good one? <laughs> what are you talking about? Lost in oh, Space no. is great. East. <laughs> you do you not like the new Lost in Space? Ah, it was definitely written for kids. I think oh, that's all right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah okay. that's the fine. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, it's rollicking good fun, Andrew. Yeah, I know. And the mum is a good scientist, and that's good. Nothing will beat the Matt LeBlanc movie, though, with the Apollo 440 soundtrack. Everything will beat the Apollo, <laughs> the uh, Matt LeBlanc movie. Anyway, we're going. It's not about Lost in Space. It is not about Lost in Space. No, but you do have the theme song in your head now, don't you? No, I don't. Anyway, Wandering Earth. Ty. Where does this rank for you among the disaster movies from around the world that you've seen? I think it's very easy when a country kind of makes a big sci-fi blockbuster for the first time to give it a kicking. And in terms of science, absolutely, I'm sure you can take (laughs) it to the bank and take it out back and smack it over the head with a frying pan. In terms of like sheer entertainment and bombast, it's up there with some of the craziest American ones. I would say it's better than the likes of The Call, maybe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, God, yeah. I was thinking throughout I, this film, so I, much better than The Call. I think with a film like this, it's really got to lean into the crazy elements. And I think because there's so much happening and so much going on, it doesn't give you time to really stop and think about it. Unlike Geostorm, where you're occasionally stopping and thinking about it and going, no, this is just crazy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's more entertaining than Geostorm, but not as stupid as Geostorm. And I kind of like Geostorm for its sheer stupidness. Mm. Same with the core. So I guess it's, it, it really depends what you're looking to get out of this film. Mm. If it's just like two and a half hours of sci-fi action-adventure, then you're going to be sorted. If you're looking for hard science and some you know, deep thinking about man's place in the universe... Uh, you will have come to the wrong film. I kind of think that that's what happened with me because um, regular listeners to The Shed will know that I like to go into a film without knowing anything about it. And all I knew was the title. And I thought, it, it sort of in my head, it was maybe something like Another Earth. Have you seen that? Yes. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. I thought it might have more thought put into it. than I thought it, more, it might be more sciencey, more hard sci-fi more interesting in that way so when i was hit with this film that was so different to that i struggled a little bit with it and i do want to go back to it properly and watch it fully uh with subtitles but you know there's only so many hours in the day and watching this film twice in a week is not really something that i felt i could do maybe have some final thoughts on the film later but we should do some science and Toshna you said you've been spending a week thoroughly enjoying the science so take it away. I feel like I invested way too much time into this in what was actually a busy work week but you know like well you know it's work adjacent maybe I'll write a blog about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah yeah. You do so. I was going to say, actually, that apart from just looking to the science, because, you know, it's based on a book. um, And obviously, I was I haven't read this book. I read um, the author's other more famous book, Three Body Problem, but I haven't read this one. And so I've looked up differences between book and film. 
And I was really interested to find that there's massive differences between the book and the film, which is, you know, unsurprising. That's usually how it goes. But what really surprised me is that literally the whole sort of second half of the film, the whole interaction with Jupiter, that is not a part of the book at all. They just completely made that up, which to me was really surprising. But then actually, when you think about the story, you know, that is such a random thing that happens. Because I was sitting there thinking, you've had such a massive issue happen in the first, not even quarter, in the first millisecond of your 2,500 (laughs) years. Ernie, yeah. you're in trouble if you couldn't even sort out getting past Jupiter, you know? Although, <laughs> once, once you get past these planets, there's nothing, right, between... Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but then past Jupiter, you've got a lot of other planets yeah. and a lot of solar system and then intergalactic, you know, interplanetary space, interstellar space, which you know, we know nothing about, really. Um, so it kind of, it did, it did seem like a bit of a blip, you know, and the whole point that, that they were going to use Jupiter to slingshot out of the solar system, which scientifically holds up. So they really tried cool. to bring in the science, but then it's just gone a bit, <laughs> you know, they've kind of gone, ah, science, science. And then someone's got fed up and gone, no, 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 no. I want, I want a big thing with Jupiter. And they've gone, ah, fuck it. You know, let's just have them collide or whatever. Because I was thinking, you'd think they'd have worked out the maps of this so that we don't get sucked up by Jupiter. You know, you think, you think we wouldn't have gotten too close, but then there's this weird gravitational anomaly with no explanation whatsoever of why Jupiter's entire gravity is suddenly changed. It's a spike. It's a spike, Tushna. It's a a gravitational spike. (laughs) Which just (laughs) sucks all the atmosphere in one direction or the other and you can't really tell. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But again, even when they were doing that ridiculous thing, it was clear that they did have a science advisor because every now and then they would say something very scientifically accurate. Like, you know, I was watching the film and I got pulled out of it because they were suddenly going, oh no, we've approached the Roche limit of Jupiter. And I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about Roche lobes. Okay, that's actually a really scientific term. It's the limit, sort of the point at which um, if any celestial body, if it gets too close to another body with a more forceful gravity at that point, you know, that other body, the bigger body will rip you apart. You know, it's what happens with asteroids and Jupiter all the time. It just rips them apart and that. So, you know, they were using these like really scientifically accurate terms, but then, you know, they also had things like, oh, we're just going to, explode all of Jupiter, which will work now because Earth's close to it. Which, okay, again, vaguely, I'll give you that. But when they do that, why did the whole of the Earth's atmosphere not catch fire also? <laughs> because they show you that. They show you the two atmospheres sort of combining because Jupiter's sort of pulling us apart in that. So yeah, they would have fried the whole atmosphere of the Earth too. But If none of this Jupiter stuff happens in the book, because, <laughs> I mean, admittedly, and I shouldn't really admit this on the podcast but admittedly I did have a few beers while I was watching it but I I mean basically Jupiter is what happens in this film right exactly exactly so here's the crazy thing about the book in the book on the Wikipedia article it just describes the character of the protagonist I'm guessing it's the astronaut's son who's on earth so he is supposed to be born after what they describe as the breaking era so that's when we've actually escaped the solar system and we're now slowing down so this is like well into the journey you know more than halfway through the journey and apparently the whole book is based on the social impact and the logic of doing this and things like that 
the earth gets past Jupiter like it's meant to. And the whole point of the book is that it's describing all of these generations in space. This is what I kind of was thinking that it would make for such interesting TV if it was a miniseries. And it's apparently a big part of the book that they spend a long time debating whether this was the right decision and whether actually they've screwed humanity by doing this whole moving the earth kind of thing. And apparently there's like two camps, you know, where like one camp was thinking that the helium flash that they describe, which is the like main reason why they, they decide to move the earth. There's no guarantee that that was going to happen. And so was it the right thing to do or not? And for me, that would have been so interesting because, you know, you think about it. They say 2,500 years. That's approximately how long the journey would last. That's 100 generations on there. So you think that once you kind of get to generation 25 or something, that generation is going to be like, who the bloody hell came up with this idea? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what? Um, but at that point, it's too late to do anything about it, you know, I'm guessing. I guess we find that, out about that. That sounds in the Wandering Earth 25. When that, yeah. That I, sounds I'm, a lot more like Lucy Sheen. But exactly, exactly. And that's kind of because he always... With, with the three-body problem, what he really likes, you know, he apparently is really fascinated by humanity destroying itself. But then he also apparently believes firmly that we'll never actually destroy ourselves because we're too selfish. We'll, like, at some point, you know, our need to survive will kick in kind of thing. I mean, so it's definitely something I want to read the book, I think. It's definitely prompted me. So the science, like, starting out with the whole sort of sun expanding and swallowing us so obviously that is not due to happen for another five billion years um, before the sun even gets you know into that phase where it starts turning into a red giant it's so far into the future and the film isn't set so far into the future there's a very good chance that humanity will have wiped itself out already well before that point um and you know the helium flash that they mentioned funnily enough if that were to happen with our sun, it's not, it's something that would happen well into it already being a red giant. So it would have already consumed the earth. <laughs> so oh. Oh. so, so <laughs> apparently, again, according to the Wikipedia article, which yeah. we're using as very reliable <laughs> research, Frank Guo, the director, called on the Chinese Academy of Sciences to consult. Doesn't give who the four scientists were, again, <laughs> at least are not on Wikipedia, but I'm imagining it's, it's going to be a, a Brian Cox on Sunshine uh, kind of thing yeah. where the director or the, the scriptwriter is saying, so, but, but if, if this were going to happen, how could it possibly happen? So exactly. So they, they, they I, I'd really to like that. to address a couple of those things and dive in. So if, if it were to happen, is, is there something that, that could happen externally that would cause the sun to go a little bit mental? So yeah, that helium flash thing that they described. So our sun, it's not a very big star. It's not huge. Even when it dies, it's not exactly going to go into like a massive supernova and turn into a black hole, for example. It's not big enough to pull that off. It doesn't have enough mass. And one of the reasons that this helium flash that they described could happen is if the sun actually, in the key bit of the phase of the red giant where it kind of has to use up all of its hydrogen to fall in on itself when that's happening, it might run out of hydrogen because it doesn't have enough. And if that happens, apparently it starts then using up the excess helium. And when that happens, or if that happens, the, the sort of nuclear forces that kick in 
could create this thing called a helium flash, which would be quite disastrous. But like I say, if that were to happen, everything that I've looked up suggests that that would happen about 1.2 billion years into it already turning into a red giant. And now what, what people don't realize is that, you know, everyone worries about the red giant. By the time it gets into the red giant phase, it would have already gotten so hot. The sun would be so hot for so many millennia before that, that all of the Earth's oceans would be fried. The planet would be screwed already. So we'd already have had to make uh, whatever our plan was would have to happen well in advance of it actually hitting that red giant stage. And um, I looked up some of the more recent research on, on sort of what would happen if the sun expands, is it going to swallow us, kill us, all of that. And I came across this interesting paper, which was looking into, could the planet survive? So one of the interesting things is that as the sun expands, it's going to throw off loads of, you know, it loses matter, waves and waves of matter. And as that happens, it's actually going to change the orbits of all the planets because loads of matter and mass is being pushed out. Um, and so everything, including the sort of happy spot in which the Earth currently sits, the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, as we describe it, all of those boundaries change. Um, and so interestingly enough, to survive not being swallowed by the sun uh, when it turns into a red giant, we only need our orbit. So we, we're currently, you know, we measure the distance between us and the sun is one astronomical unit. And we only need to get to 1.5 astronomical units to survive being Mars. swallowed. And, and then everything's kind of okay. Where Mars is now? Is that 1.5? Yes, exactly. It's exactly yeah. where Mars is. So then we're thinking, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what's even better is that as the sun expands, the habitable zone expands. So yeah. actually, many more of the planets. And in fact, you know, you think, all right, so we could hop onto Mars, but Mars isn't great. We already know that there's not loads of free flowing water on Mars. So actually, what happens is a load of the other moons and planets. And so the habitable zone would then extend way past even the Kuiper belt. So humanity could actually move to one of the many icy bodies which, you know, exist in the Cuba belt that are, you know, even smaller than the Earth, because that, that's great, you know, move somewhere smaller. Which, which one's the Cuba belt, Tishna? The Cuba belt is what's after Jupiter. Yeah, so not, not the bigger asteroid belt. So where a lot of the sort of objects that we study exist there, and then all of the water on all of them, it will melt because it will no longer be cold because, you know, the sun's heat will reach there. So that was really interesting. So yeah, the, the, the weird thing is that the earth would be screwed well before we hit the red giant phase, but that increase in temperature and pushing out of the habitable zone would mean that we could actually hop to one of the other planets, which currently might seem um, like not a good choice. There's a potential future, billions of years in the future, where humanity's on several planets yeah. outside yeah. of Jupiter. Yes. That's, that's really we cool. We could send all the hairdressers and the lawyers to one planet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, next question, Tushna. Yeah. So given that we might need to relocate at some point, if we needed to relocate humanity and, and chose to do that by an international collaboration of, of rocket engines that we build on the Earth and uh, fire all in the same direction into space, how, how would that work? 
well, from what I can see, from what little research I've done, um, which genuinely included uh, Googling the wandering earth science, mm. <laughs> the suggestion is that like, so again, it's, it's, it's a kind of science that it's not, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. It doesn't break the laws of physics. It's just a really bad idea. So I was thinking about this and I came to the realization that actually the wandering earth, it's a great physics problem and it's a great way to do a problem in a physics class because what they've gone is, here's the problem. The problem is the sun is going to expand, swallow the earth and we're all going to be screwed. So what are our options? And in the list of options, they come up with all of the options, starting with most plausible and going on to more and more ridiculous. And they've gone and chosen the most ridiculous problem. Mm. So it's almost an exercise. It's like doing the spherical cow in a vacuum. Can tell me what the spherical cow in a vacuum is? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a little bit of an in-joke with physicists that, you know, you, you can try and solve a problem um, and you can come up with a solution that works within the laws of physics and the laws of mathematics, but it's so ridiculous that you, you say, consider a spherical cow in a vacuum, whereas in reality, cows are not spherical and don't tend to do very well in vacuums. It's, it's an approximate cow. Exactly. An, exactly. an exact solution to an approximate cow. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of like, I, I kind of like, I was like, that's fun. That's fun. They've gone, right, we're going to do the most ridiculous scenario. How can we make it happen? So one of the first problems that you come up with is we need to have enough thrust to move something that's as big as the earth. And we need to escape the gravitational pull of the sun Right now, as you well know, to escape the gravitational pull simply of the Earth, uh, the escape velocity is something like 11.2 kilometers a second. That's the speed at which you have to be moving to be able to get anything out of the Earth's orbit. The escape velocity for an object uh, trying to escape from the sun is something like 42 kilometers per second. <laughs> so you're now trying to move something that's as big as the Earth Mm. at a rate of 42 kilometers per second and then you're trying to do that for at least half of the time period which is of 2500 years so in the film they build these giant engines and they mine the earth to use as fuel there's a couple of articles you can find on the internet and there's a nasa rocket scientist and then another bunch of physicists who did the maths and basically what would happen is by the time you got to alpha centauri which is kind of where they're heading you would have no earth left. You would literally have to use up the entirety of the earth to have enough fuel to get us there. In fact, even if you were to use the same method to move us to that 1.5 AU orbit that we were discussing, you know, just go that much further away to get to where Mars is right now, you'd lose something like 14% of the mass of the earth, okay. uh, which is, you know, not great, not great. And that's one of the first issues. The other thing that I just couldn't get my head around, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but, you know, obviously they have all of the engines on one side of the earth because that's, you know, you have to propel from one side, otherwise you're just going around in a circle. <laughs> Pointless. <laughs> and, you know, it was really good because they talk about X period of when you're accelerating and then a period of sort of just staying still and then the braking and, and so then they, they suggest that at some point you reverse the engines 
but I'm just not sure how you do that. You can't suddenly put the engines all on the other side of the earth. And then if you just reverse the engines and that you back up, you're literally burning through the earth. So I just, maybe I'm missing something there. And no one seems to have talked about this, but I'm just not sure how you can um, reverse the engines when they're on all on one side of the earth can you not, can you not turn half of them on to rotate the earth and then and then turn the probably on yeah to... you'd have to do like a spin maybe somehow which then which then yeah you're trying to rotate the entire planet 180 degrees to get do we, your do we have a sense? that doesn't happen very often no <laughs> do we have a sense of of how many people they're all living underground Right, well, exactly. And, and you know, uh, one of the things that like that, so that's the thing, there were so many tidbits in the film where I was like, oh, this is interesting. I want to know more about this. There's a bit where the grandfather talks about when he saves the little girl or when like all of those people are drowned and floating. With the, and you're thinking, was that intentional? Did, did the United Government Pervert just decide that we're going to have like massive casualty? Was there an entire sort of race war where like X and Y, you know, the rich people got saved and got to live in underground bunkers and then the poor didn't. What happened there? How how do they work all of that out? I want to know. Well, I I don't know. There are a large number of people for whom there is a point in history where (laughs) a deity flooded the world apart from two people. So it may be... Maybe it's the second coming of that deity who just got really maybe, annoyed maybe again. It is. Maybe, maybe it is. the oh, maybe no, the no, apology no. rainbow wasn't good enough. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking, and of, we never talked about that. We never talked about like where are all the animals and the plants and what how no. you know have they brought two of everything. No. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we're going to do religion in the next episode because <laughs> Ty's been speaking. Ty, Ty, tell us a little bit about what we'll be talking about in the next episode. Uh, so I, I've been interviewing the writer and director of a sci-fi faith film called Assassin 33 AD, <laughs> where a group of scientists accidentally um, invent time travel. Then a bunch of uh, Islamic extremists use it to go back in time and kill Jesus. Right. It's got oh Christianity from ever happening. Okay. Uh, watched it over the weekend had two pages of questions and tracked down the director to uh, okay. that's yeah. amazing ta- where, where can one um find this film you can find it on amazon prime to rent or on the faith-based streaming platform christian cinema <laughs> might go for prime if you want to join us to chat about it Toshni, you're very welcome we're going to have a little watching party at some point it is something yeah it is something anyway that's next. We're currently still with Wandering Earth. So they started all over again, underground, just a handful of men, yeah. right? Yeah. And then doesn't it still get pretty cold? So that's the other thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ty, but do they mention something about shutting down the core or something like that? Like in passing, does that get thrown? Like the Earth's core, on this day, the Earth's core stopped and that's why... There was something like that, wasn't no, there? It, um, once they fire the engines, basically because they they stop the Earth's rotation, that's right, why yeah. the massive tsunamis that wipe out yeah. a yeah. lot and of so, the population. Yeah. And if then you're as stopping, the sun moves away, the Earth moves yeah. away from the sun, those tsunamis freeze over. 
That's that. right. That's right. So yeah. So if you're stopping the rotation of the earth, you've kind of turned off the dynamo, you know, so that mm. there's no longer that rotation, which is interestingly exactly what's happened on Mars. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things that they didn't at all mention, which, you know, fair enough, they couldn't have thrown any more random science in there, was that what happens is you completely... Um, leave the protection of the sun you know and one of the main things that drives our atmosphere and the dynamo and everything is a solar wind we're in a really good place for that and actually the effects of the sun go way past our solar system even you know there's this sort of boundary at which you kind of get past that and th th this is something which we're still even debating whether the voyagers one and two have actually gotten past this boundary it's a bit of an in-joke in physics world that about every three years there'll be another paper saying, no, we've definitely left <laughs> and we're definitely in interstellar space now. And then there'll be another sheepish letter, like a little while later being like, oh, maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a question. And that's because the sort of influence of the sun extends for so far past what you would assume. So really, once you get past that, and there's so much protection that we get, you know, a good example is just to look at the moon without any kind of atmosphere and um, protection, because it doesn't have an atmosphere, how much it gets bombarded. And then you kind of think if you don't even have the sun and it's solar wind protecting you, yeah, how are you going to protect Earth from whatever lies in interstellar space? And, and you know, in recent times, there's lots of the suggestions that you have free-floating sort of these, these planets whizzing around in interstellar space. They're called rogue planets. I love that, rogue planets. Um, basically, it just means that a planet that's not attached to any star, and because of some kind of celestial dynamics, it could be uh, two stars colliding and giving off a blast of energy so that it shoves one of the planets, slingshots one of the planets out of that solar system. And it's moving so fast that it doesn't get trapped up by anything. So you can imagine, this, you know, there you are zipping along and then all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do about all of that? You know, um, I mean, there is, they do have, we've kind of completely forgotten to chat about how. Um, yes, of course. Uh, how? how? <laughs> no, how? Moss. Moss. We're Moss. calling him Moss. Yes. Yeah, um, but there is that, they, that is, I like that concept. I like the fact that we had, um, the space station and that's something that they actually did really well with with the science because it's really hard to navigate in interstellar space you know how do you navigate when there's literally no landmarks around for 4.2 light years mm. <laughs> um, so i'm guessing that the, the really big sort of space station that they have with its navigational capability would use um, a pulsar map and and we would navigate using our local neighborhood pulsars to get to alpha centauri but yeah, there's so many. <laughs> but, but hang on, just just to go back slightly, just to come back from interstellar space, get back to Jupiter. Did they and can we use the International Space Station to set fire to Jupiter? I really doubt it. I think you could drop it through the atmosphere and kind of have really great data and images until you stop seeing anything. Yes. Um, Cassini. What, what's Cassini, thank you very much. There we go. Cassini, I think that's basically what you can do. So the, the, their suggestion was that Jupiter suddenly becomes inflammable because the atmosphere of Jupiter, which is, or majority of Jupiter, which is very hydrogen heavy, um, comes into contact with the atmosphere of Earth that has a lot of oxygen, which then somehow makes it combustible. And then you have the dad driving the space station in which has loads of fuel in it, 
presumably because that needs to self-propel and and using that as an ignition. But I don't know, you could potentially do that, but then you would absolutely just fry the atmosphere of the earth. Uh, So so you'd have no way of making sure the earth doesn't also catch fire. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's doing that anyway. Who cares? Right. So there's, if let's go back out into interstellar space and we should probably talk about Elon Musk's Twitter Oh God, let's not. I can't even. I can't. I can't. I, I am can't. so disappointed, but let's not go there today. Okay. Yeah. Let's do I mean, the only time. thing that made me feel better was the massive tanking the Tesla shares had that evening. Yes. But he yes. literally <laughs> tweeted that he thought there were two. Why is he doing it? I don't know. Let's leave it where it is. Um, uh, but in interstellar space, let's say Wandering Earth 17, right? We're watching Wandering Earth mm-hmm. 17, and then there's a rogue planet. So it's called Wandering Earth 17 Rogue One, right? And the, the rogue <laughs> planet that comes past the Wandering Earth, mm-hmm. and there's some sort of interaction. Maybe they all make friends with the mm. aliens that live on that planet. That's, that's a story. I mean, hey, I'm up for that. I'm up for that, you know? You know, yeah. It's about yeah. as plausible as this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, once you've done that, once you've literally taken, I mean, actually, let's not forget that by the time we get into interstellar Earth, I, I'm sure someone could do the maths to figure out how much of the Earth would be left behind. Smaller and smaller. <laughs> by the time you actually get to Alpha Centauri, it's about the size of, let's say, about the size of um, the Rosetta asteroid, which is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Put a couple of houses Is it also on shaped like a duck? I wish. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? I quite like That'd the idea great. of the the descendants. The ducky. Of, yeah. yeah. The descendants of Elon Musk and Donald Trump smacking each other, <laughs> trying to get to be the last one who's alive on this one piece of rock arriving at Alpha Centauri. <laughs> it's amazing. What a beautiful the idea. Three of them going, no, this is my bit of the earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back on your side. Yeah. I can't, I can't falling off the edge yes (laughs) sorry it's gone slightly crazy but uh, is there anything else we need to talk about there's also then the remaining question of exactly how they intend to slot the earth into a whole other solar system and you know alpha centauri it's it's a really interesting solar system it's it's our nearest neighbor um it has a lot of interesting stars but there's also it's not as it's not as simple a system as ours. There's multiple stars in binary orbits and things like that, um, you know. So so then, yeah, the orbital mechanics of just getting anything there would be really hard. That's you know, yeah. <laughs> once you put the brakes on, that's just, they've got two and a half thousand years to work that out. Though, mm-hmm. it's fine. Yeah. And also, I I just asked JJ Abrams. He just writes stuff, and the next guy will deal with it. It's fine. Yeah, that, that's exactly what this is. I, I'm willing to bet that, like, you know, like I said, get to generation 75 and they're going, bloody hell, what are so, we meant to do with this? So as a, as a non-hard sci-fi film, this, this definitely isn't The Martian in terms of the level of calculation no. that's gone into how many potatoes you need for this. No, no. Um, It'd be too hard to do it. It'd be just because they've got so variables you know but there's only there's a couple of huge jumps but other than that the physics is sensible the the sun going mental and the rocket engines pushing the earth around i'm i'm trying to think what the rest of the science is the the howl slash moss 
uh, rogue AI is fine, yeah. I think. Well, it's not really rogue as we find out in the end, right? Yeah, so. okay. And and Lucian was uh, like credits Clark as uh, uh, someone that he admires. What else is there on the science? There's the lighter core thing for yeah. I mean, starting these these really... rocket engines, but yeah. no, but you. You know. it, it take it, it takes something to start those. I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure a little ball that you can carry around has enough. And then get to... into occasionally to protect yourself. <laughs> just... Yeah. Um, but... Can, but can I just go back slightly? So, Steve, what you're saying is, apart from the sun exploding, the Jupiter being ignited, and the fact that we can't get there, it's all fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just it's just Newtonian physics. Apart from that, isn't yeah. it? It kind of, it reminded me of, you know, with Interstellar, which is, you know, one of my favorites and sort of um, in Interstellar, I remember reading about Kip Thorne working with Christopher Nolan and, you know, Christopher Nolan would say something like, oh, I want a planet where, you know, when they get onto the planet surface, um, one hour on the planet is seven years on Earth. Um, So he'd say something crazy like that. And then Kip Thorne would say, right, well, if you want that, then your planet has to be in the bowels of a black hole and it has to have these massive waves and this and that and the other. So it's that kind of thing. And um, so if you, if anyone's ever read the, the book that Kip Thorne wrote linked to Interstellar, the science of it, not the best mm. reads, uh, very technical, um, doesn't follow the chronology of the film. So, but he does this really interesting thing. He has a little sort of rating system on all of the science. And, you know, so he rates it as plausible. Yes, it works, but kind of extreme. And it doesn't quite make sense to make these decisions. And then there's like physics that's totally out there. Like what happens when he falls into the black hole? Because we just don't know. And I think this is a little bit like that, you know, so you can do it. It's not outside of the realms of physics it's not breaking the rules we're not going beyond the standard model of anything but, but let, you... let's not let the scientific plausibility get in the way of a, oh, yeah, a no. great ride it's like how would you make a lightsaber andrew if you want to really go there yeah, well, <laughs> why would you make a lightsaber you know how it's... yes for the really cool zoom sound that they turn <laughs> on um yeah oh it doesn't matter right i mean we've we've been doing this podcast well i've been doing this podcast for five years <laughs> there's one thing i've learned in this time is it doesn't matter but there's of, of just... course it matters because it gives us something to make a podcast about oh, yeah, and rant a little bit yeah. so <laughs> it's fun but there's um there's there's sort of moments in films where it does matter like like 2012 you know yes. that that matters but that's because the film's not great yeah exactly <laughs> Um, but there's things like this, it doesn't, I think um, Andy Weir back in the, the very first few episodes of The Cosmic Show, Andy Weir said, you know, there's a, there's a MacGuffin, you have your MacGuffin, you let it go, it's fine. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how it is. This, what, this film's got a few massive f*** off MacGuffins, and we're okay <laughs> with that, it's fine. It's probably dilithium crystals, Andrew. Yes, oh, yes. Exactly. Is that Do you guys thing? remember the um, 70s? British show Space 1999. Of course. The film reminds me of that. It's a Jerry Anderson show. And essentially there's a moon base on the moon. Something happens. As as opposed to a different... (laughs) And the moon is blown out of Earth's orbit and just travels through space. And that's the TV show. That the moon is just travelling through space and all the inhabitants of the moon base are just trying to survive. 
that that could really happen. That could really happen because one of the things that like NASA is actively working on is how to move asteroids out of the path of Earth. And a way, you know, the, the main ways in which they would do that is either blow up a nuke on one side of because obviously this is America. And if you can nuke something, why wouldn't you? Um, especially if they can get away with it, yeah, you yeah. know. So nuke it or um, the other option is to just crash land something like a probe onto it and knock it out of its orbit so you know which you know which you could even do to the whole planet here we but, go it was uh, the most yeah. expensive tv show for british tv at that time oh my God. in the opening episode in the year 1999 the moon is knocked out of earth's orbit after nuclear waste stored on the moon's far side explodes that works <laughs> well there you are there well, that'll get it to 42 kilometers a second, won't it, Tishna? <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, actually, the, the Earth's you... already moving at 30 kilometers a second, isn't it? So... Exactly. And the, the, the Moon is constantly, every year on year, moving away from the Earth. It's, it's this beautiful and sad thing that in something like, I don't know, 50,000 years or something, you won't have eclipses happen as perfectly because you know we are in this weird perfect position um, between the sun and the earth and the moon and as the moon gets further and further away you won't have a perfect total solar eclipse so, so we don't need it. a nuclear explosion we just need a lot of patience yes. a lot of time I, be I believe it's moving away at the same speed that our fingernails grow is that right I think. there you go there you go so just sit and watch your nails <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly so i can i'm just going to edit uh what you said there Toshna, and it'll sound like you said nasa are working on blowing up the moon and sending it <laughs> way up in space and they're going to put I mean, it on the physics they, world they, podcast yeah, and it, one of the things that like nasa is actively working on is how to blow up a nuke on the moon the moon nuke it if you can nuke something why wouldn't you <laughs> and then they'll find, and then they'll find out that the moon is actually an egg and is about to hatch. <laughs> I was say that oh, was the that's another thing. What's that? Ever. I know that one. That oh, Doctor Who. Who. Okay. Yeah, it was one of those episodes where, when it finally hatched, I was just like, "Well, I wasn't expecting that." Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the ones where I was like, mm. "Let's let's call an end to it." <laughs> And, um, sounds, sounds like time to me yes and uh thank you very much indeed to uh ty and Tushna and steve for joining me cheers thanks andrew i'm waving we're on a podcast <laughs> <laughs> and uh yes we will be back soon with an episode on 33 ad assassin assassin 33 ad <laughs> come on get the name of this cinematic <laughs> masterpiece <correct. laughs> and that was not even i for one cannot point. wait it used to be are called we, are we... resurrection time conspiracy oh wow what made them change it resurrection time conspiracy is you'll better. find out you'll find out find out <laughs> next Ooh, are we gonna are we gonna synchronize our watching of this with some yes. some live we chat live I'm remote distance chat. we are definitely okay. yeah i'm uh, hoping because one of our most popular episodes of all time is our science versus religion spectrum thereof, where we oh, had a danger, form, danger, Will Robinson, a former, <laughs> a former Muslim, a former Mormon, and a former evangelist preacher come and join us, and uh, hopefully we like should. Um, yeah, it does. We're, we should set up a Patreon level in which we share our WhatsApp chat while we're watching these films. <laughs> I'm gonna to have to be a lot more, a lot more sort of circumspect if we start doing that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, no, it'd be a very high level. Yes. Oh yes, absolutely.
Thanks for listening, everyone. This Death is, is normal. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.